This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Life Data Labs. I'm Mike Barker, sales manager at Life Data Labs. Dr. Frank Gravely has always said, if you help a horse, he will repay you. So we at Life Data Labs salute you, the farrier, for the excellent work that you do in keeping horses sound as well as improving their overall health. We have a team of professionals at Life Data Labs that is willing to assist you with any nutritional questions or problems that your clients might be dealing with, whether it be the hoof, joint, or just providing a balanced diet for the horse. We are only a phone call away at 800-624-1873 or you can visit our website at lifedatalabs.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Arne Gervasio has been shooting horses since the 1960s. So over those years, he has seen trends come and go, has worked in multiple disciplines, and built a successful multi-farrier practice. These experiences make him an interesting interview for this podcast. This chat with Arne is particularly revealing about shooing high-end sport horses. I think if you're aspiring to be a farrier who travels and works with those horses, Arne shows that it's not all big dollars and glamour. Keeping these horses competing is a tough challenge, and the clients can be even tougher. Overall, he has a lot of great insight about shoeing sport horses, which he touches on throughout this episode. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Arnie, let's start with the beginning. How did you get your start in horseshoeing? I grew up next to an old-time horseman from Virginia that raised fox hunters when I was a kid. And um, he did his own shoe, and he was his own veterinarian. He was everything. It was pretty impressive. The man couldn't read or write, but he was selling horses in the 50s for $10,000. Work horses bred to thoroughbreds, you know. He stitched his own horses. He castrated them. He shot them. So it was a good learning experience uh, all the way around with rough horses and young horses. And then as I got in my teens, I wanted to be a cowboy. So... (laughs) I started um, riding reining horses, and I liked that. And I started working apprentice with a guy um, in my summers at a school, and he was kind of a cowboy guy from uh, California. You know, he was kind of a pretty guy and played the radio, and he was kind of like my hero. And he was in the quarter horses, and I started riding reining horses, and. <clears throat> got into that a little bit and then went to service and came out and uh, started shoeing horses and working part-time jobs. I worked in a factory for four years and shot horses during the day and worked the night shift. And um, I did a lot of backyard horses at that time in, my, in the beginning. And uh, my first account was a riding academy and she supplied the shoes and everything. And I got $4 a horse. I guess that must have been somewhere in the early 60s. From there, I just started showing my quarter horses, and I was showing backyard horses and fox hunters and anything I could shoe. And uh, back in New Jersey, in those days, they had a lot of breeding farms. So we did thoroughbred horses and babies and quarter horses and hunters and did all that. And then I started going to the quarter horse shows 
every time I was at a show, show my horse or somebody asked me, oh, shoe my horse. So I got to shoeing them, and that brought me to the Quarter Horse Congress, basically. I was there for 20-something years, shoeing reining horses, halter horses, all that. Quarter horses were big in New Jersey at the time, back in the 70s and the 80s. Then it all disappeared, but I um, used to do a lot of reining horses at one time, and uh, I um, <clears throat> designed and made the first commercial sliding plate called Sure Slide in the early 80s. And we had that on the market for a few years. Bobby Anthony and I, he was a Hall of Fame reining horse trainer. How, and, uh, could, you, could you go back and talk about how you conceived of that or designed that? Well, back when I used to uh, do a lot of reining horses, I started out really riding jumpers. But as the time went on, like I said, I got into the quarter horses and uh, I was riding reining horses and I was working for a lot of guys at that time, which were the best reining horse trainers on the East Coast and Ohio and all over. And uh, we used to have to make all our own handmade shoes. So when I started shoeing horses, the only keg shoe you could buy was a, a diamond or then Nordic. We shot a lot of thoroughbred horses. And, you know, there's a fallacy in this country about toe clips versus quarter clips. And everybody says, well, when they come from Europe, they got toe clips. Why don't we shoot with toe clips? Well, when I grew up, we shot everything with toe clips. And then we had... We were showing, you know, we had thoroughbred horses in, and they had thin walls, and they weren't like these warm blood. So when we put studs in them, the shoe would shift a lot of times. It was just a toe clip in those thin walled horses. So we started three clipping them in front, just so we could hold the shoe on the foot better. And then um, these other companies started clipping them. I think the first clip shoes we got were baker shoes from England. They used to come in a burlap bag. And the heels were cropped, and we had to crop the heels off and grind them or whatever. But we didn't grind back then. We used grass. So we hot raft everything. Or we made our own shoes. And when I was doing rainers, there wasn't any sliding plate. So if they wanted an inch handmade shoe, sliding plate, we made it. Or if they wanted an inch and a quarter, showing the five-eighths and the heels, we did that. So I decided, well, geez, let me make these shoes. Let me try to manufacture them with a bevel toe and sell them. Well, back then we called it Sure Slide. Heck, I think it was costing me, like back then, about $4 a pair. And I could only get 5 or $6. So I had a partner, so we were only making a dollar a piece. So then other manufacturers caught a hold of it and started putting them out, too. And... My partner was spending all the money, and I was doing all the work. <laughs> so we kind of quit that. And then I used to do an article in the Rainer for a few years on sliding horses and sliding, you know, <clears throat> horses sliding, and if they splayed out or if they skipped in a stop or different things like that. It was a kind of a question-answer deal in the Rainer magazine. Quarter horses, it was getting a little tough and I always wanted to get into the hunters and jumpers because 
that's where the country was going, especially back on the East Coast. The quarter horse and breeding farms were slowly leaving. And um, I started with one account at a time, basically. And it took a long time. I got one account that went to Florida. So I started coming down to Florida probably when I was in my 40s or late 30s, not like a lot of these kids that apprentice with us that are in Florida in their early 20s and they're getting that experience. One account, come down once a month, then it was two weeks a month. And then if you did a good job, they'd tell their friend and you would get another account. And pretty much that's how it's revolved to where I'm at now, where I'm down here six, seven months and I've been all over the world shoeing horses, Florida Olympics, WEG Games, had the world champion jumping horse, number one in the world, world champion driving horses. So I shot horses basically in a lot of different disciplines. When did the transition sort of go from the public liking the quarter horses to the hunter jumpers? I think it was back in the 80s when the economy went a little bad. A lot of the quarter horse places were trainers trying to run their own operation and breeding their own horses. And it took a lot of money and there wasn't any money to win. That's when the AQHA had AQHA champions. Then different disciplines started to break away, the rainers and the pleasure horses and pleasure horse and uh, your your hunters and you had your cutters. It was all away from the, the American quarter horse that we knew growing up that could do everything. Now they were specializing. And there wasn't, I can't remember exactly, but I remember breeding uh, quarter horses and you could take a baby to a sale and get $2,500, $3,000 for him. And, you know, if it wasn't a great one or one you could really take and show, you could always, you know, get your money out of it by breeding your mare and doing what you were doing. <clears throat> but then it got to a point where they were only bringing a few hundred dollars. And it's really gotten bad today unless it's an exceptional horse. The good ones are really selling, but there isn't any middle road in the quarter horses anymore. And the small shows in all the different states are small, unlike the jumpers. There's so much money in it. I mean, down here in Florida, you used to have to be a millionaire to be down here. Now it's billionaires. You know, you got the best horses in the world. You got the best trainers. And it just started to evaporate, and that's when I started to push to get into the jumpers and the hunters. And you could, I started you could see out, that writing on the wall. Well, I did, because what was happening with me was I was showing for a lot of quarter horses that were paying me, and I'm not trying to talk bad about anybody, but a lot of people didn't have the money. And, you know, they might owe you 1500 and you go back and shoe, and maybe you'd do another six, $700. Well, they all they could give you was 200 So, you know, you just kept getting in deeper and deeper. And it was hard to grow. You know, when I started shoeing the jumpers, automatically it was like $50 more horse. So it just was a whole big step. But it was a big step getting those customers back then because back then all the horses in New Jersey and around there, Seamus Brady did most of the jumpers and hunters of the, the good horses. And George Fitzgerald did a lot of them up in Connecticut and all. And there wasn't very much room for anybody else.
A lot of listeners have probably heard the name Seamus Brady, and he passed away back in 2009. What was he like? Can you tell us a little bit more about him? I knew Seamus because we only lived about 20 minutes apart. And you can learn something off of anybody, you know. But Seamus was an influence to me because he had all the good accounts. He did the Olympics and everything else. And uh, I kind of looked up to that. And uh, when I left the quarter horses, started shooing hunters and jumpers, he uh, told me, he said, well, there'll be, it's a big difference between shoeing these horses and this quarter horse. And I kind of thought to myself, well, what do you mean that horse is a horse? I can shoe a jump, I mean a hunter, I mean a quarter horse, I can shoe it, you know, anything. But there is a big difference because it's a different discipline. They're jumping, they're landing on their front feet, they never stop. And today, a horse doesn't get a break. Years ago, they would quit showing in, like, say, uh, November, and they wouldn't go back to show until January or February. So a horse would get two or three months rest. These horses don't get any rest, so you have to stay ahead of them and ahead of the problem to keep them going. But there's been a lot of mentors for me. I mean, I never went to horseshoeing school. It's all trial and error. You know, I grew up with him. That's all I've ever done is horses. The old man that I grew up with was a big influence on me because we took horses that weren't real good horses and made them into some. You know, shoeing the backyard horses, just went and, sh- and put shoes on them, and that was pretty much it. But when we started doing the Congress and the quarter horses, shoeing the hauler horses, we had to kind of turn their legs and do different things to make it stand up straight. So it taught you a lot what you could do and what you couldn't do. You know, and you made mistakes, and then from your mistakes you learned. So that's how that all came about. Hanging around the Congress for two weeks with a bunch of good horseshoers like Lee Lyles and uh, Terry Stevers. You know, we all played off each other. We all learned from each other. You know, we were all in competition with each other. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of funny, but we played a lot of jokes on each other and we learned from each other. When we didn't shoot horses, we made things. We made belt buckles, spurs, bits. So, you know, all those things add up to your knowledge, you know, over the years. And then when I got down here with these uh, jumpers, all that knowledge that I had all my life all came to play. I, you know, I could do what I needed to do to keep these horses going. And you were going down but, there. You were going down to Florida early on in that time. How has Wellington changed over the years? Oh gosh, when I first started coming down here, the two top horseshoers were probably Seamus Brady and George Fitzgerald. I think Brady probably did the most. He got, he got recognition from me. He was the team farrier for years, and um, he had a lot of great accounts. He traveled a lot more than George. And um, it was small back then, and there was only like seven or eight horseshoers there shooting these horses. Now there's a couple hundred. Uh, it's gotten so big, it's just incredible. Like most of my accounts are 40, 50 horses apiece. So it's constant every day now. Something's happening, you have to go, this one got an MRI, this one had got vetted. So I've got two full-time guys working for me, plus two part-time in New Jersey now. 
but another part-time down here. So I got almost five people. And every day it changes, and every day we got, we get about six to ten horses done if everything goes right. But they're all, they all have prescriptions now. I mean, it's not, you just can't go in and just shirt the shoes off and throw up a pair of shoes on them. You know, this horse has got low heels, this one's got high heel, low heel. This one's flat-footed, this one's this. I think the jumpers and the equitation horses and maybe the dressage horses are the best footed. The hunters are tough because they get, you know, they're always kind of on their forehand and they're trying to get as much stride as they can at them and their head and neck blow. And it, they lunge them a lot and, it, you know, it shows in their feet. What are some of the things you have to do to maintain that? We usually do these horses every four weeks down here, which doesn't give you a lot of time for growth. And I think the problem with a lot of the hunters is they lunge them so much to get them quiet enough for the hunter classes, plus they're always bathing them and they're running soap off them and water. And down here the sand gets in their feet and under the shoes and it stays damp. And you have aluminum shoes on everything. So they never really try out like if you were in a muddier climate. So I just, you know, I try to, tell my customers the least amount of water is better you know stop giving them so many baths if you can and uh, some of them we put pads on some we don't um, I don't do a lot of hunters anymore I used to do a lot of them I did Scott Stewart for 25 years he's probably the best in the country he's got the best hunters it's kind of gotten you know the hunters are going to different shows and then the jumpers has kind of gotten like the quarter horses a little bit. You know, everything's different now. You know, if you're going to do the jumpers, they're going one place and the hunters are going another. So it's hard to keep up with it. I like the jumpers better myself and the size horses. And uh, why is that? I want to say I think the, the hunter, the, the jumpers and the dressage and the um, equitation horses and all. I don't think they go through what a hunter does. A hunter, um, you know, they got to lunge them to get them a little tired so they go quiet, go with their head down and stride out. Where a jumper or a dressage horse, they want them to be up a little bit, a little firing them. They take a hold of them. It's a whole different way of riding. So they're not on their forehand all the time. So they're not loading their front and their feet as much as a hunter is. And like I said before, the jumpers are all going to certain shows and and the hunters aren't going to that many shows. And they do a lot of Kentucky stuff and things like that, and I don't go to Kentucky anymore. And I did um, Chester Webbers in um, Ocala for eight years as driving horses. They were world champion. They were fun. They were different. It was an experience. Get trying to get all those horses moving the same. So when you went in the dressage element, they all kind of went the same with their legs and the same height. I um, did a lot of world champion hunts. I'm not trying to say, you know, anything negative about them. I just like showing the other horses better. Yeah. A few weeks ago, you sent me a picture of one of your bills from 1968 when you could get a, a shoeing job for 14 bucks. When I was getting fourteen dollars a shoe a horse, Seamus Brady was probably getting seventy five. <laughs> you know what I mean? And 
you know, it always gave a young guy the incentive to get better so he could get more money. That's such a stark difference in pricing, and, and we're talking about 1968. What was it about his work, or what was it about the clients where incredibly different, you know, almost five times as much? Well, I would say $50 anyway. Seamus, um, he's the one that basically brought the horse rearing prices up for everybody. He always was the guy that wanted to get paid for his services and wanted to get paid well. So he'd always reach for the moon. And he thought he was worth it and he was doing the best horses around at the time. And he was Irish and he had a little of that Irish brogue. So he had all the right ingredients to charge more money. Plus he came over with the team. Uh, Arthur McCashin at the time was running the U.S. team, the jumping horses, and Seamus came over from Ireland with him and started shoeing horses. So right away he was in a great position to shoe some of the better horses over here because the team brought him over. So it was kind of an end, do you follow me? Sure. And he always asked more if you were getting a hundred dollars to shoe a horse he was getting 150 and when you were showing quarter horses compared to jumpers or hunters or show horses they always the, the hunter jumper world always brought more money than the quarter horse world when it comes to horse shoeing when it comes to anything you take a uh, quarter horse trainer today and might get a thousand dollars a month to train a horse keep it or twelve hundred a month you'll take a hunter jumper guy will get a couple thousand you know that's the whole big spread down here it costs you what is it two thousand dollars a month just for a dry stall during the circuit that's not counting your shavings that's not counting your fees just a stall two thousand a month is the money still in it with hunter jumpers or have you seen the economy change at all with it nothing changes down here they're tearing houses down and building big farms on three acres they're paying, I had a big customer of mine just bought the adjoining place next to him. It's three acres and a beautiful rancher on it. I mean, beautiful, a little barn. I think he gave three million for it, tearing it all down and putting the cover into an arena there next to his place. So he spent $3 million for a piece of, for three acres and he's going to tear the whole building down, all the houses and everything on it. It's just incredible, and you would think so. One of these days it's going to end, but it just gets bigger and bigger, and there's more horses. You know, years ago, you know, we had all Americans here, and we had a few people from Europe, but now we got them from Venezuela, Argentina, France, all over the world through here. So it's a real, it's an international thing here. And all the horses fly here like you would put them in a trailer and drive them around the corner. Now, I've got customers that'll take the horses and fly to California this weekend or this week for a show and then fly back. You know, um, we got horses flying over here all the time. Yeah, that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Sport Horse Farrier. There's a lot of pressure on you when you're in this high-end world when they have well, this, this much money tremendous. involved. Here, it's a service business. You have to be good, but you have to give service. I mean, on any given day, I got my day planned for tomorrow now I'll start off tomorrow say I'm going to go to Joe Blow's and I got six horses to do or so well I'll start out at 8 o'clock to go over there and at 8 o'clock or 8.30 I get a phone call I need these from another account 
put two shoes on. The horse just got back from MRI, and we got a ride in the set. So now how do I go to that place and choose six horses when Joe Blow wants me to run over here and put two shoes? So I basically have to have somebody that works for me with a second truck to run around and put a shoe on or put two shoes back on or a horse is getting vetted to do something. So it's constant. And every day it changes. And if they lose a shoe at 10 o'clock jumping, they expect the shoe to be on in an hour or so, two hours. I can't say, well, I'll come tomorrow or two days from now. I have to be there. So, you know, it's a lot of stress. And then what you have also is you have horses that leave on Tuesday by 11 o'clock Tuesday, they have to be in the FEI tent. That's the horses that are jumping in the Grand Prix. So once, so they come back Sunday night, they're there Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday morning. Any horse you got going to the FEI tent the following week has to be shot that day and a half because you can't go in the FEI tent without a lot of aggravation. I used to shoe on the showgrounds a lot when they had tents and all, but now that's all changed. All my barns and my horses are all outside the showgrounds and they just get trailered to the showgrounds or hand walk. You know, they all have their little farms now. How have you learned to manage those expectations over the years of, or sounds like in some ways, you just have to accept it and say, if you want to be in this world, this type of horse, you have, like you said, you have to deliver that service. When you're working for the best in the hunter jumper world or the hunters, the hunter jumper world, and shoeing these top show horses like I do, you're on call 24 7. It's hard to plan your weekends. You can't. I'm working down here seven days a week. If I can get a Sunday off down, then I do. If you do, do if you have a backyard business, they'll, you know, you, you, you have some leeway there. You can tell them you'll be there Thursday. They say, okay, you go there Thursday. You can work hard, you want the weekend off. You can plan it, you can get your weekend off. You can take a week's vacation. When you're in this business that I'm in, there's no such thing as a week's vacation unless you've got somebody good working for you that can cover that week that the people know and feel comfortable with. You just can't call Joe Blow up and say, hey, go shoot these horses. You know, for me, it just doesn't work that way. They develop a trust in you, and it takes me really a couple of years with an apprentice for them to trust them. But the funny thing about it is, if you don't give them service, I don't care how good you are, they'll find somebody else. And that person might not be as good as you, but as long as the shoes are on the, and the horses are sound, they're okay with it. So it's a, basically a service business. You have to keep them going, but you have to give service. What advice do you have for building that trust with the owner and your guys and your helpers? I probably have had more people work for me than anybody in the horseshoeing business. And a lot of them, I can say, are out in business for themselves and doing pretty good and doing darn good. But I try to hire clean-cut guys that don't have drinking problems and are responsible and represent you in a nice way. You know, you can't have anybody that drinks at night and comes in looking like, you know, he's all beat up or whatever, you know? I mean, not in this world. You know, you can't do that. And that's a bad thing with quarter horses. 
I mean, with, with horse shorts. So many people decide they want to be horse shorts. In order to shoe here, you got to have, I hate to use say the word, a little class. You have to look good, and you have to represent yourself well. Because you're dealing with wealthy people, you're dealing with the best in the world. I mean, I do like Bruce Springsteen's, I do Tom Selleck's daughter's horses, I, I um, Terry Bradshaw's horses, I mean, the list, I used to shoot Jackie Onassis's horses. You have to, you know, represent yourself the right way. I think that's a big key to it. You have to have a clean truck. You have to sweep the floor when you're done. You have to not smoke in somebody's barn. I mean, all these little things play a big part in it. And you have to do a good job on the work. You can't rush in there and, you, you know, some people go in there and rush, it's how many they can get done. Well, you go into a place, you rush through and do 10 or 11 horses, pretty soon they're gonna be looking at you saying, hey, how could you do a good job if you ran through 11 horses? You know, what did the last one look like? You know, in a lot of cases, it didn't look like the first one, you know? So you have to, every horse is different, it takes time. How do you plan out your day or, or how do you, I guess, schedule those clients on the four week schedule? Most horses, horseshoers, have what they call like a rotation. They do the horse on the first of the month, they'll go to a camp, they got five horses to do, they'll do it on the first of the month. So write down their calendar the first of the month, next month. And they plan it to go to, they don't have that many customers. But when you're doing three to 400 horses a month, like I do down here, you can't do that because there's so many, every day something changes. I work for all professionals, people that buy and sell horses all the time, the best in the world. So they got everything changing every other day. I might go to Beacon Hill this week and I got seven horses to do. But after I do the seven horses, two days later when I'm supposed to be at Laura Krauss or Lauren Huffs or Jane Clark's, Beacon Hill called me up and said, we got two new horses in there. One horse got better. This horse is lame, but that wants to meet you here. So I got to rush over there and squeeze them in. So I'm running around every day. I don't have a, a, a rotation because I have too big of a business. So it changes. I just go, they call me up. They get frustrated with me. I tell them, look, I'll send somebody over or I'll be there tomorrow. Or I can do this or I'll squeeze you in. And that every day, you got to deal with that stress. I mean, that's the long and the short of it. Anybody that's got a big business has got to deal with that. I have friends that do horses on a rotation, but they're only shooing 20 to 60, 70 horses a month. How might your numbers change over a month? Mm, well, down here, like I said, they're coming and going. And a lot of these people are, uh, some of these barns are sale bars and they sell horses some months more than others. But a lot of them are getting new horses in every week or something like that, or they're setting the horse out on trial and then I got to do this or that. Uh, my numbers get a little less in the summertime because I have about, oh, I'd say about 90 horses that are here that go to Europe for the summer. So that's 90 I don't have to do once I get out of here in April. But I used to be down here like four months a year now I'm down here almost six months, seven months a year. And now we got Trident Horse Show in the Carolinas, and they're 
they're going there before you come here. Then from here they're going there. Then you got they're they're building a, a thousand acre place in Ocala now. It's supposed to be fantastic. <clears throat> the guy's got a another big showgrounds in Ohio. I got horses going to Nebraska in a month for the World Games. I mean it's it's unbelievable. They're flying horses all around. Everything's changing. You know, there's so many horse shows now. Then you get up north, and you got Old Salem, and you got Socrates, and then Kentucky. They got to go for points, so these horses all got to be ready to go to these shows. And then you got all the indoors coming up at the end of the summer. But the future of the horseshoe is going to be doing shoeing show horses like I do is going to be a life of living on the road pretty much with these people going all over the place i'm fortunate enough and brady was too in george that we live up there in the new jersey new york connecticut area there's a lot of horses and a lot of people go up there because it's close to new york city and a lot of owners live in new york and they go there and ride so we're right in the heart of it you know i tell a lot of horseshoes you know they say to me well how do i start a business young guys and they say, well, I want to live in Florida, or I want to live in Montana. Well, in Florida down here, there isn't any horses in the winter to ship. So if you get clients in Florida during the winter circuit, and they go home, well, where's home? It could be Illinois, it could be Indiana, it could be anywhere. They all come here for the winter. So that means in the summer months, you got to travel to all these places. All these horses I do are all from New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut right around there. So I don't have to get on the road and drive more than a couple hours or something here or there. I tell them to move to a state where there's a lot of horses, where you can grow and have your own home there, too. And you'll be home at night. You can have a family. <clears throat> you can try to enjoy life a little rather than sitting in a pickup truck seven days a week. What other advice do you have for breaking into it? Say you, you're starting out, you establish, or you want to establish yourself in an area. What advice do you have for, for building that career? Well, I think as a young guy, I think these horseshoeing schools are a lot better today than they used to be. But, you know, they teach you a lot of theory. And, you know, and all the muscles and different tendons and legs. But you need experience on horses. And a lot of guys don't have it. I grew up with that experience. A lot of us old-timers grew up doing that. We didn't have drugs. We didn't have tranquilizers. We twitched horses if we had to. They didn't inject joints. They didn't inject coffin joints. They didn't do anything. We'd have to figure out what type of shoe or what we could do to make that horse sounder. You don't have that today. The vets inject them. They go sound. The horseshoe just puts shoes on their feet a lot of them. And the vet says, I want a bar shoe. The horseshoe puts a bar shoe on. A lot of these guys... Don't have the don't have the opportunity to think and use some common sense when you're shoeing horses and read a horse. Look at a horse, look at his conformation, look how he hits the ground. All those things are important. You know, I think they should go to horseshoeing school if they haven't had any experience at all. And then I think the problem with guys, I think you need to get with a good horseshoe that's good horses. So they learn the right way the first time. The hardest thing I have over the years with 
apprentices or help is getting things out of their head that other people have put into them. That's not the right way to do things. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, if they get with somebody that doesn't have a lot of experience and isn't a really good horseshoer, they learn those ways. Now when you get them, you got to take all that out of them. you got to wipe their brain clean and start them again. And that's a little hard because they're very impressionable in the beginning and they have their heroes that they listen to. So I think it's important to get with somebody that's good. Now you take these boys that work for me. I mean, a lot of them are in business now that have worked for me in their late 20s down here in Florida. It took me till I was in my late 30s, 40 to get here. I got here one account at a time, just on my merits and the work I did and people seeing it. These youngsters come down here and they got the benefit of meeting all these people at an early age. And it's like somebody opened the door for them. So that's a great opportunity. They're being seen, they meet people, and it's a good start for them. You sort of get what I'm talking about? Yeah. Is it easier for a young guy to go on down there in, in Wellington and break into it compared to 30 well, or 40 years? Well, I'll give you an example. I, um, I think it's easier if they spend time with a good horseshoe down here and get to meet these people. And then they can get one account at a time, or they get introduced to somebody, they pick up a couple horses after work, or they get a horse on a weekend. And a lot of guys have done that with me. I had um, one boy, John Gonzorek, that worked for me for four or five years, and he was as good a help and apprentice as I've had. And he wanted to move to Florida and live here. And uh, it took him... Oh, I'd say a few years to get a business going, but now he's got a business going that's pretty good. Where, where he goofed up was when he got down here, he took and started in business. He got accounts that were, like I said before, Indiana and all over the place. So in the summers, he had to travel all the time. When he really didn't want to travel, he just he had a family and a wife. And now he's trying to get everything back to where it's in Florida most of the time of the year, and he does less traveling. But by meeting people, that's how you get a camp. People see your work. People get to know you. And one thing leads to another. Okay. That's how I would do it. If you're going to, if you think you're going to shoe in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and get six horses that come to Florida, and they say to you, well, hey, can you come and shoe my horses in Florida? Well, by the time you get down here and shoot those six horses, you're not making much money, and you're going back home to Milwaukee. So you have to keep doing that till you get more accounts, more accounts, more accounts. It's not easy to do now because you got, like I said, there's 150, 200 horseshoers down here now. It wasn't like it was when I grew up. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me look here and switch pages for some of the other questions. And, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of the stuff I was thinking about uh, sort of comes from our conversations over dinner too, on uh, on on the world, uh, and and in fact I, I've thought of some different ways to approach the questions in the magazine on reading a horse, but uh, that's one topic I want to talk talk about, especially with sport horses, is uh, what your process is or 
Um, could you explain your process for reading a horse when you're going to work with it? Yeah, I'll give you kind of basics on it. You know, when I go to show a horse, I'll look at his. I'll look at the horse, and I'll look at his legs, and I'll look at his conformation. I'll look at him whether he toes out or whether he's pinched in the chest and he's base wide or base narrow and pigeon toed, or he's long pastern or he's short pastern. Uh, uh, then I'll look behind him and I'll look through his back legs and look at his feet and I'll say, geez, he's low on the uh, medial side of his front feet and he's high on the outside or the lateral side of his front feet. Or, but they're the same with the back feet. And then that'll give me a basic idea of where I'm going. But first, I, is he a jumper? Is he a hunter? Is he a dressage horse? You know. So each one of those horses, you would shoot differently. Okay. A hunter, you, you're concerned about length of stride up front. They go in the hack class. They have to move low and long. And then a lot of times they'll get to forging, but the back feet will hit the front feet. So you have to either square their toes off or set them back a little bit in their back feet to shoe, and the front foot basically to balance them and trim him. Now the jumpers, you would shoe them a little shorter so they don't grab a front shoe. And you would try to get as much heel on them as you could. The dressage horses, the shoe's a little longer to support them when they rock back on their rear end on the hind shoes and the front shoe. They want more support. They're not running around 100 miles an hour jumping fences. And when you you read these horses and you pick the leg up and you hang it and you look at it, is it left is it high on one side? Is it high on the other side? How much foot is on there? Can you take more off the high side and get it as level as you can? So that's another thing you look for, front and back. And then shoe, shoe the foot to where the shoe's full. You know, and, uh, and it fits the foot and it's not pinched. And the jumpers, you got to watch your toenails on. Where the hunters and the, and the dressage horses, you don't so much because they're not jumping over big fences and landing on their front end. And if you put a toe clip in with too tight a front toenails, you can make a horse lame when he jumps those big fences, especially on the synthetic footing we have down here. Synthetic footing is not deep. It doesn't. They don't break through it, but they don't need caulks. They can run around there without caulks in their shoes and don't slip. So there's a lot of different things to know about each horse you shoot. What his job is? Do they turn him out in the field? Does he stay in the stall? If you turn him out in the field, you wouldn't want to shoot him as long and full because he'd probably rip his shoe off, especially down here when the sand's six inches thick or deep, rather. A lot of people get crazy with all this stuff. You know, I think a good balanced foot and grinding the edges of these shoes and maybe semi-rolling the front toes or drawing them out a little bit so they can break over is a good way to go. Kind of a neutral way of going. Um, There's some people that roll all four toes, which I think is not thinking about what your horse does. You know, it might be a, a good way of looking at it to where the horse can break over in all four feet for the horse. But is he a hunter? 
you know, if he's a hunter, you don't want to roll the back feet because if you roll the back toe, you're going to make him hockier. And they don't want a hunter to be hockey. They want to move low to the ground. <laughs> so you wouldn't do that on a hunter. You know, uh, a jumper you could get away with. But, you know, I mean, there's all little things you should, being a horseman and knowing the, the business, like, um, there's a lot of horseshoers that will shoot every horse the same. I don't know where they get it, whether they get it from the journal, whether they get it from these clinics, but I don't do that. I look at every horse for what he is, and I try to shoe for the job he does. I wouldn't shoe a barrel racer like I shoe a, a sport horse. You know, I wouldn't shoe a cutting horse like I shoe a hauler horse. And I wouldn't shoe horses 40 years ago in New Jersey that were fox hunters living out in the snow and the mud like I'm shoeing these horses. I think in the synthetic flute, uh, the synthetic footing that we got, years ago when I grew up, we had navicular horses. So we shot them from navicular, we shot them. That's all they said, he's got navicular disease. Today, I never hear of navicular disease. It's all coughing, jo coughing joints usually down here. A horse gets coughing joint soreness. They inject their coughing joints. And I think a lot of it is because of the synthetic flow, because there's uh, footing, there's not enough give in it. We can, um, but it's really strange. Years ago, we had a lot of horses, they were, the vets were calling with sore coughing joints. Then it wasn't coughing joints anymore. Then all the vets were on collateral ligaments. Then it wasn't, so now you don't even hear collateral ligaments. You still hear coughing joints, but now all we hear is suspensors. Okay, this horse has got suspensories behind. Now, with one vet that I do, that's a prominent veterinarian I work for, he likes a suspensory shoe behind him. Years ago, when a horse had suspensory problems, we put a bar shoe on him behind him. Now, I say to them, well, if a horse got a high suspensory or low suspensory, or he's got a long sloping pasture behind him, no heel and a long toe, why do you shoot him the same as if you had a horse that had a straight-up pasture, short toe and high heel, and a lower high suspension? Why is the same shoe good for everything? Well, they don't want... So when I went to the summit, it was interesting to listen to that lecture from the lady from Germany. Jenny Hagen. And, uh, yeah, the problem I had with that all where all the tendons were and all the ligaments and the superficial flexor and the flexor. I mean, I think it was good to see where all the tendons were in the leg. I thought he did an excellent job with all that. But my question was just like I said to you, what's the difference? How would you shoot a horse with a high, low suspensory, different pasture and angle, different foot? So I was trying to understand what she was saying, but it was hard because of the broken English. So afterwards... I went over to Workman, and it was interesting to see that new 3D program that they have that you can go on and look at where it shows the different loading of an eight-bar shoe versus a suspensory shoe on a hind foot. And you could put any kind of shoe on that limb you want, and you've seen what tendons lit up from the pressure of the foot compressing on the ground. Well, I've seen that. So then I finally got a chance to talk to her. And I kind of asked her the same question because I, I can't really get a straight answer from a lot of veterinarians about that. So I asked her what she thought about it, and her explanation was that she thought 
a bar shoe, an egg bar shoe, was better on a horse with firm footing, harder footing. The suspensory shoe on the back of a horse was better for a horse on soft footing. So there you go. I mean, that's you got all different surfaces in these rings. What's soft? What's hard? You know, this synthetic foot, uh, footing down here. I don't know if they even go in an inch, and it's hard. But we're putting suspensory shoes on most of these horses. And I asked the riders what they think, and the horses are going. They say they're fine. So it must be working, I guess. But it's hard to get a clear explanation of that. I mean, that's a very interesting point, suspensory on a horse. Do you see a lot of trends, or or do you, would you consider them fads of what you get from vets? Or, or is there something else going on, too, of... Like you take our advanced diagnostics now that maybe weren't around uh, 10, 20 years ago. Well, I think this advanced diagnostics is a great start. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, there's a lot more that has to be done. These horses are going all the time and they're jumping all the time. So it's hard on any horse, regardless of how sound he is. So you're going to have problems. Each one of the horses, most of these horses I do all have issues. So you're dealing with something different with every horse. And you kind of got to, stay ahead of the problem, like good hoof balance and not too long a toe and, and all that kind of stuff. But I don't, the problem is they never get a rest. And the vets are trying to hold them together. And they're injecting and they're doing this and they're doing that. Well, how long can they keep doing that? You know, that only goes so far. And I don't know whether some of the vets are just buy more time by saying one thing and gives the horse a little more of a rest, but I see all suspensories. The last three years, Danny, that's all we've had. It's for The worst problem has been suspensories. So whether it's coming from this footing, I don't know. But if it was, you think they changed the footing. In uh, Europe, I don't think you have as much. I don't think they work horses on the softest ground as we do in this country. I think it's, the ground's harder. They do a lot of road work. Years ago, I did five dressage horses here in Florida. They lived in Florida. Their feet were a nightmare, okay, just keeping them going. They were big horses. They were always breaking up. They were this and that. They went to England. They were supposed to go for two months. They went for two years. I went over for a year straight. I shot the horses in England with the same shoes, the same nails as I did in Florida. Every time I went to England, it rained. Okay, so you can't say it was the water, okay, because they got as much water there as they did here or more. But their feet were better. Why? Not as much humidity, I guess. It was more mud that dried in their feet. It wasn't this wet sand that got under their shoes and just kept grinding and staying damp. So there's a lot of things like that that really could be answered, you know, but you think if the footing was causing these suspensories, they change the footing. But down here, this footing, you know, you don't need screw caulks in a bit. You can go in a Grand Prix class, you don't have to put caulks. They don't slip in it or anything, so it's got to grab somewhere. Most of the trend is shoeing here, beveling the front toe, so a horse breaks over better because they're not sinking in this footing and breaking over through the, over the toe. So they kind of hit and it goes down maybe an inch and they got to break over. So by drawing that toe out, 
it gives you your breakover back further helps send a horse forward are you seeing more sore horses today than you did maybe 40 years ago not really i i think it was different shortnesses four years ago it was more coffin joints there wasn't hardly any suspensories four years ago now it's all suspensories even up front now we're seeing suspensories and coffin joints they inject a lot of coffin joints and we have suspensory problems but um i don't hear collateral ligament i don't hear navicular i don't see any bow tendons or anything like that just suspensories now i don't know if the suspensories are coming from the footing or too much jumping i don't think you see that many suspensories in the hunters as much as you do in the jumpers or size horses you got to remember a jumper's jumping a big fence and landing on his front feet and jumping off the fine end high a dressage horse is being pulled back on the fine end he's working off his fine end all the time so he's putting a lot of stress and strain on there that's why we kind of shoot him a little longer behind just to give him a little more support and up front too i see a lot of suspensions in the jumpers more than anything Earlier, you had mentioned learning horsemanship as a farrier. How would you rate horsemanship even among those high-end clients? It's not like Europe. When you go to Europe, you got young kids starting out training horses and getting on horses that are colts and are broke. And they learn from the very beginning how to ride one, how to be around a horse that's a little bit ornery or bucks or does whatever. In the quarter horse world, you got the same thing in this country. You know, somebody's got to train them. They breed, they have all these maturities for younger horses, so they're starting young horses and they're training them and breaking them. In this world where I'm at, they're just buying the very best horses in the world. They're already trained, they're already broke. Most of the trainers, all they got to do is keep them together and go around the ring. A lot of the trainers aren't real trainers. And the kids are just wealthy kids that parents have bought them great horses and they get on their horse and they show it. It's a whole different deal. So they don't know how to train one to uh, be a jumper or be a hunter or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's, it, they're just, they're buying good horses and they're getting on them and somebody's prepping them for them and they just go in the ring and show. So it's a whole different deal that way. Yeah. I think I've heard you describe that before as, making a horse versus a made horse? Well, I'm being honest with you. You know, I might not be politically correct, and a lot of people say, why is he talking like that? But, you know, I, I kind of say it the way it is. You know, I mean, that's the way it is, really. I mean, these are wealthy people that can afford expensive horses. I mean, some of these horses are $3 million, four or $5 million, and more. You know, there was uh, a jumper just sold here the other day for $3 million. I mean, when you think about that, <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> and not only that, but all these places down here and, and everything else, it's a hobby. It's not a business. The only ones that are in it for the business are the veterinarians and the, the trainers and the horseshoers. Like I was at one big place today, every Tuesday, the vet goes there. There's 20 horses. Every Tuesday that I'm there, he shows up, and every horse... Gets taken out, gets flexed, gets jogged, gets circled on blacktop, looking for something. That's a lot of vet. 
And, and these horses are going over constantly by vets, chiropractors, massage therapists. I mean, uh, they've got all sorts of walkers and different things to stand on to stimulate blood supply to their feet. I mean, it's a, it's a big business down here. It's the biggest horse show in the world and the best horses in the world. For one final question, let me ask you, so one of the words you used, used with me before, and, and I've heard you say before, common sense. Looking back over your career, can you give me one of the best pieces of common sense advice that you'd have for other horseshoers? As far as just shoeing horses, you know, and being around horses, I think one of the most important things is to be aware of your surroundings. Always not have your toolboxes laying around the horse, not having uh, cross ties too tight, not having dogs around your horse when you're shooting, that kind of stuff. Be aware of what you're doing. Make sure your horse knows you're coming to him. Walk around him. Don't walk straight up on him. Don't take it for granted. We always take this for granted. Touch him before you pick a leg up. You know, those type of things. I think they're all basics, but they're good common sense horsemanship. Because I get, you know, you get complacent. I do myself. We all do. You know, and I got young kids, and the horses are quiet, and they just grab a leg. Or they're they're a little tight on the cross side, so they grab a leg and pick it up. Well, they take a chance of the horse flying back. They don't know the horse. Anything could spook a horse. Uh, There was a girl give you a quick story a couple of weeks ago down here that uh, a veterinarian I don't know how long she was out of school but she tranquilized the horse and she was going to inject the hawk and she went to uh, scrub the hawk before she injected it and, you know she went back to the horse and she touched the hawk and the horse kicked her double barreled her and broke her back and punctured both lungs we're in a dangerous business and we all take it for granted so I think it's good to use good common sense when you're working around horses. Just as a basic common sense and just basics. Because you could get kicked in a heartbeat and you have to be aware of everything. Nobody wants to know. The owner doesn't want to know your toolbox was laying next to the horse and he stepped in it and cut his deep flexor tendon. I've seen things like that happen. I've seen a horse rear up and fall on the hoof stand and punctured his side. I mean, I've seen all sorts of things over the years. I keep the floor swept up and I keep all the tools and everything, toolboxes, away from the horse at all times unless you're working on them. People just take everything for granted. Well, there you have it. Arnie's right, he's not politically correct, but I think what he has to say is definitely worth listening to. And this past hour just scratches the surface of what he's got to teach all of us. I'd like to thank Life Data Labs for sponsoring this episode. You can learn more about their products at lifedatalabs.com. If you have a comment or recommendation for our podcast, be sure to post it on our podcast page at americanfarriers.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. 